This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, July 20th. 2012. This is episode number 77. We would like to say thanks very much to our three sponsors, squarespace.com, rackspace.com, and of course, hover.com. We also want to mention the bandwidth for this episode. In fact, all of the episodes in July is sponsored by our friends over at Infinite Kind, SyncSpace. That's what they make. It's for iPad and Android. It enables multiple people to sketch ideas together wherever they are. Learn more at infinitekind.com. It's a little bit busy here today. What's going yeah. on? You're, you're at home. Yep. If you hear banging or squeaking or other terrible noises, it's because they're installing a dryer downstairs. A washer dryer? Just the dryer. Our dryer died after what must have been like 25 years of service, maybe longer. Are you, ki- years. Are you kidding me? You had a... You- Oh, man. It came with it came with the house, and it was, <laughs> and it wasn't new when we got the house. You've been in. You, how long have you been in the house? Can you talk like about that? 13, 14 years. And when we came, the dryer was there, and it looked old when we moved in. So it must be from like the eighties. Finally gave up the ghost, but then we we were waiting two weeks to get this uh, new dryer in because they delayed our delivery for a week, and so now they're finally here, and it could be noisy. So I apologize. It's all right. It'll add a little bit of ambiance, and people will feel like they're right there with you in. In your yep. personal space. Things are falling apart here, though, Dan. Like, as we get closer to the article publication date, uh, events are conspiring to destroy me. For those who don't know, uh, John Syracuse, whenever there is a, an update uh, to macOS, John writes a lengthy review of it. And he has been working very, uh, very hard on getting this one out in time, especially because recently... You were at WWDC, right? And there was announced that July is when uh, the new version would be coming out. And of course, we don't know when in July, but knowing Apple, it will be the last possible date that they could release it in July, which what do you think that will be? I have no comment on the release date. Okay, so you actually do know it now. Okay, good. I good. didn't say that. No, no, you didn't have to. At any rate, uh, it's obviously not today, as far as I can tell. So that, that gives how many days left in the month? Like, you know, the, the window is narrowing. Yeah, but uh, so the article, the article is the least of my problems. It's the rest of the thing trying to thwart me. Like I have, I've got water in the basement from an unknown source. That's always fun. Okay. I've got water in the ceiling from a known source. Oh I've got the dryer going in to the yeah. basement that has the water. I've got my parents coming who plan to stay in our guest room in the basement. Uh, and I've got the article stuff which is still like in flight because everything has different lead times. You know, the thing has to be edited and copy edited and the ebook versions have to be generated and submitted to the various places where it will be. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's all coming to a head. And then on top of that, I got trying to arrange my notes for this show. So they're a little bit haphazard. So I apologize, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll channel some of the Merlin foo where the, the less well-prepared shows end up being better. Who knows? Or worse, I don't know. Do you have to have a bilge pump down there? I'm thinking that one would actually come in handy, but no, I don't have one. I didn't know if you had like an automatic bilge pump that would just kick on if there was water down there. No. When you say basement, 
it does it have windows in it is it sort of the it's it's actually more like a, a just a very low first floor or is it the true basement when people think of it like with the door coming off of the kitchen and the dark stairs with just a little old really deteriorated string hanging to the bare light bulb as you go down the stairs and it's somewhere in between those two i think okay but it's a real basement yeah all right so let's go with some follow-up here. How Great. about that? Love it. First bit is uh, not attributed to any single person because I've gotten this feedback from many different directions, Twitter, email, and such from many different people. And it's the que- and we talked about it in the last show a little bit, but and you've talked about it on other shows. But I'll talk about it again now. It's iPad versus iPod. This rumored possibility of a smaller iPad is getting people in a tizzy about the line between what is an iPad and what is an iPod. And I think this is mostly triggered by the fact that the iPod touches a weird little device. Like it's, it got the name iPod put on it, but it was always weird. Like it was never really, there's like, Oh, you have the iPod iPods. Then you have the iPod touch, which is really just an iPhone without the phone. Uh, and now people are thinking of it as like, Oh, you know, it's not an iPhone without the phone. It's an iPad without the bigness. Uh, so is it an, it, it's, it's always been this weird thing. Uh, and the question is that when they make this smaller thing, if they make this smaller iPad thing, the, the question is, what do they call it? Do they call it the big iPod Touch? Do they call it the small iPad? What? Wh- whose name does it get? Because it's on it, on the two sides, you clearly see iPad sitting over there, these 10-inch things, and iPod Touch sitting on the other side of it. And then you're going to make something in the middle. Which direction does it go in? Uh, I don't think I, I think I gave an opinion on this last time, but I don't think I talked about it too much because I think the, the answer is obvious. If the rumors that we've all heard are true and that the screen of this smaller iPad will be 1024 by 768 points, that's points, not pixels, because they don't want to, uh, you know, say whether it's retina or not. Uh, it'll be called an iPad because it will run iPad applications. And what's an iPad application? It's an, it's an application on the App Store today that says it's compatible with the iPad that renders its user interface in 1024 by 768, period, the end. Like, they have no choice. They have to call it an iPad, uh, at least when it's launched. Uh, if you need further reasoning, I can say uh, iPad is sort of ascendant as a brand, and iPod is fading as a brand. Right. Not that iPod is disappearing, but iPad is clearly the new hotness. Why in the world would they give it the name of iPod, further muddying the waters of a brand that kind of, you know, had its day, right? Uh, then the question is, well... Maybe they'll rename the iPod Touch. Can you rename the iPod Touch as an iPad? Because, so if iPad's going to, we're going to relegate that just to those things that play music that don't run iOS right. and you know, not have one of them. Can we, can we name the, rename the iPod Touch something with iPad in it or something? I don't think you can get away with that right now because the iPod Touch doesn't run, quote unquote, iPad apps. And again, what's an iPad app? It's what's currently labeled as an iPad app. You know, they, they have an existing nomenclature for this stuff. And it would be terribly confusing to call the, call the iPod Touch something that has iPad in it because it just doesn't run iPad apps. But this little smaller iPad, again, if the rumors are to be believed, uh, would run iPad applications. Uh, so names can change over time, but I don't, I don't think at the launch of this third product uh, there will be any significant naming shuffle. If they wanted to eventually realign the names, which I think they probably will want to do eventually, kind of like how they changed iPhone OS, they eventually coined the term iOS and gave a more rational naming scheme to their operating system. They could go with like the iPad and the iPad mini, and you could extend that scheme to encompass the next iPod touch by calling it the iPad nano. So you could have an iPad line of products many years down the line that has like suffixes or prefixes or 
or, you know, or maybe there's nothing about it. Maybe they're just all called iPad and you pick the size in inches. Uh, but there will, there will be that schism between applications that run on a phone-sized device and then applications that run on a larger-than-phone-sized device. And right now we call those iPhone apps and iPad apps, which also makes very little sense because it's not an iPhone app. iPhone apps run on the iPod Touch, but there's no such thing as an iPod Touch app. It's, they have some naming issues to go there, but there is definitely a wall between uh, the two types of applications on the iOS platform, the small ones and the big ones. And right now it seems like iPad is the name of the big one, and iPhone is the name of the small one, and Apple's product lines don't quite match that. But I'm very sure that if this smaller tablet thing comes out, it will have iPad or use iPad branding somewhere in its name, and it will not be called iPod anything, because that would be very confusing. And what are your thoughts on just the concept of it just being called, you know, potentially the new iPad, and that all new iPads are this size going forward from now on, that that there isn't a, a big one and a little one, there's just this is the size now. Who who had that? I heard you talk about. Marco talked. Talk I talked with that. Marco about that. Yeah, uh, but I, I've I, I've been reading that a lot online. I forget the original yeah. article for where either he or I saw it first. I believe he saw it first, and then we talked about it. So it, I don't think it's his theory. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I believe we read it somewhere online. And uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, since Apple renamed the iPad to, to not have like a number after it anymore. They could just call the new product plain old iPad. Uh, and that gets around any possible shift in sales volume. Because that's what this is all about. Like the idea is that regardless of what Apple calls this thing, it could be that just it sells in tremendous numbers because it's cheaper. Uh, and I talked about that last time. That, like the whole reason they're going different form factor is not because they think that form factor is awesome, but just because they can make that cheaper. They think, you know, and you get more customers that way. So if it turns out to be an iPod mini type scenario where we look at the mix of iPads sold, if Apple even reveals the mix, which they're, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they won't even tell you. You know, like ne- next year's earning call, someone, could you tell us how many of the big iPads, or whatever the hell they call them, the small? No, we'd prefer not to share that information. So we don't even know. Uh, but assuming they tell us what the mix is, if the mix suddenly shifts massively to the small thing, if they just called it an iPad, it's like, well, you know, it's just we're selling a lot of iPads. They don't have to be like, oh, look at this. It's cannibalizing your big iPod sales or your summer sort of shift. So by naming, they can control that story to say, we just sold a lot of iPads. And whether they, if they tell you the mix or if they don't tell you the mix, it's like, oh, they're just iPads. You know, they're just out there. Uh, I don't know if the mix will shift like that. I think the low price one really will uh, increase the, the number of people they can sell to. So I would not be surprised to see them selling more of the small ones than the big ones. But since the big ones cost more revenue wise, it could be that the big ones still bring in more revenue, at least in the first year. And also remember that the price on all these things is going to be driven down. So maybe... I don't know. Maybe they have to decide what they're going to do with the big model. Do we keep the margins the same on the big model, or do we try to push those margins as low as the margins are on the small model? Uh, but uh, I would not be surprised to see a potential new small iPad selling in large numbers. And, but I don't think Apple will make a big deal out of that. I think they will try to minimize the significance of that, because as far as they're concerned, we're just selling iPads. Right. And so if they give it, it, their naming could influence it's kind of like what they did with the ipod they called the ipod mini you know it's the ipod the ipod mini but they always talked about it in terms of wow look at how successful the ipod is as if it's one monolithic thing even even as the sales number shifted from the mini to the nano to you know so on so that's that's my prediction there although that i i really think that is interesting to think about that we all think of ipads as this big thing what if you know two years from now when we say oh he's got an ipad we just assume it's the smaller one because everyone's got the smaller one because it just sells more because it's cheaper like I mean, the real experiment in terms of form factor would be, 
the magic fantasy land where we sell the big one and the small one for exactly the same price and that price is like 99 bucks because then you'd really see which one do people actually like but when it's it's 100 or 200 dollars cheaper or more it's not really a fair fight you know have you had a chance to i don't i don't want to take this show in a direction you're not prepared for but have you had a chance to? i'm prepared for anything well that goes without saying have you had any time to spend with the nexus 7 I have not, and I would like to. Uh, I haven't. I have one. I have one right here. I haven't seen uh, Dave Nanian recently, but every time I see him, he's got whatever the cool new device is, and I get to play with it. He's the only reason I ever see, like, Windows Phone or the new Palm things or whatever. So I'm sure he has one, and the next time I see him, he'll probably have it with him, and I will get to fondle it. But you got yours, huh? I did, and uh, I'm I'm happy to wait to talk about it until you've had a chance to look at one, or I can can just tell you some of my thoughts right now. It's your whatever you'd like to do. Give, Give me the executive summary. The executive summary, um, I, I am very surprised to like this thing. I do like it. Uh, it's, it's a great little device. I was expecting, you know, my goal in getting it was uh, two. There were two things. I talked about this also with, with Marco, uh, I think, a, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, too. Uh, my goal in getting this was I wanted to see how the Android folks live these days. This has the latest, greatest version of Android on it. I wanted to try out some Google hardware. I wanted to get the the best of the best of the Android experience because we talk about these devices so much. It would be very useful for me to have some recent, because the last time that I tried an Android device was the HTC Incredible way, way back when that thing was new before the iPhone came to Verizon. And that's not really relevant. I wanted to see what the experience is like these days. And I wanted to do so in a way that would paint the picture of what Google thinks the experience should be like and not a different carrier with their own uh, UI on top of it, et cetera. And the second reason is, of course, I've been very serious about thinking if the experience over there on the Android side is improving, and we do have a lot of folks who like these shows who do use Android primarily, maybe maybe there's space for a 5x5 app. Not something that I would build, but uh, I didn't build the existing 5x5 app either. Uh, you know, I might hire someone to build an Android uh, version of it if that if that makes sense if it's the platform that i want to support so those were my two reasons it seemed worth investing a couple hundred bucks in it i was not expecting to like this uh, i'm very skeptical about liking it both in the form factor but also in using uh using an android device period and the things that my takeaway from it is i wouldn't i would never want to give up the iPad and the form factor and the size of the iPad is great. It's excellent. Uh, you know, I, I, I guess, what is it? Is it 9.7 inches? Is that the, that is correct. Okay. So that size is wonderful a lot of the time, but there are times when you want something a little bit smaller and lighter that you can, you know, you it, it, even more portable than an iPad. And this fits that bill. And just after using this thing, like I can't imagine Apple not making one, not because they feel that they have to, but because this is a really good form factor. I really, I'm just, I'm convinced after you, I'll be, I will be surprised if they don't eventually make one in this size because the thing is super light. It's super easy to just grab it and chuck it in, you know, in your bag, uh, even more so than it is with the iPad. And there have been times when I thought, I don't know if I really want to bring the iPad to this, Uh, but it's a no brainer with the N7. I'll grab that thing. I've been taking that thing all around with me. I wish it had a cellular uh, connectivity like LTE or whatever on it. 
because I have that on the iPad and I love it. And this to me, it's, it's, it's just a super cool device. And the fact that it's Android, the Android experience, John, is not a bad one anymore. It's actually pretty good. I'm not saying it's, it's has the finesse that an iOS device has. It does not. But all of the things that you would want to do with this, getting media onto it, using it for email, browsing the web, I am, whatever the things are that you like to do with your tablet device, this does them and it does them no problem and it does them out of the box. Setup is super easy. So anyway, that's, that's the shortest summary I could possibly give and still be fair to the device. Uh, but I really want to hear your take on it. I want you to get yeah. one. Go out right I, now. I, go get one. I, I don't think I would buy one without 3G because I've, we've had a series of 3G iPads in the house. And I, that, that functionality is important to me because every, in every context when I really need to use my iPad and like rely on it, like when I, I go away on vacation, I won't have an internet connection probably this year, but I will have my iPad with me. So that's my only net connection, right? Uh, or when I go to WWDC and I can't get on the stupid Wi-Fi network because Wi-Fi isn't designed to handle 8,000 people crammed into a single room. I can still get on uh, the LTE and the speeds are fast and everything. So any 7-inch tablet, like if Apple rolls theirs out and they don't have an option for a 3G model, that's going to be disappointing and probably prevent, prevent me from buying one. Uh, and also remember that the iPad, I, the iPad one, the Apple one, if the rumors are to be believed, will be larger than what you're holding in your hand with the Nexus 7. Right, that, that, that it might be not a lot larger, but a little bit, right? Yeah, and I've played with the Kindle Fire and have not been impressed, but it's not so much by the form factor as by like what's on the screen. Like so that influences my, you know, my my view of small tablets was like, well, okay, we, you know, I, there's the there's the giant phone ones which are comical and I, those get a bad rep because it's like not big enough to be a real tablet, but no one wants a phone that big, or at least I don't anyway. Uh, and then there's the Kindle Fire, which is the only seven inch form factor tablet that I've had any contact with. And that is just it's no good, you know. It's just not it's not a good piece of hardware. The user interface is not fast. I mean, it's fine for viewing movies and reading books for on you know Kindle books and stuff, but it's not a full fledged tablet. So, at, being able to play with one of these will probably bring the seven inch form factor or the smaller form factor up in my estimation. Uh, but I still think I probably won't even be buying an Apple one if it doesn't come with three G because that's kind of how I use this particular thing. But hey, you can't you can't argue with with the price and it could be that it could be that i'm lining myself up to be the exact same person i am in the mac market the poor sad lonely guy with the gigantic <laughs> mac pro everyone else has like a little macbook air that's just, and then i'm just like in here with my mac pro i wonder if apple's ever going to update this 9.7 inch ipad again you know that's i that's just the, that's just the kind of apparently that's just the kind of uh user of apple's products i am so it could be that all the cool kids go over to the small ones and I'm sitting here with my big giant one. I mean, you've heard me talking the last show. I want a bit, even bigger iPad. I want I want the product to move in that direction as right. well as extending down. I think that will eventually happen, uh, but <laughs> I, I could end up camped out on the uh, the less popular product. I'll, I'll I will mention one more thing because I, I imagine people will want to ask that two other things really that the screen. How does the screen is it is it a Retina style screen and battery life? Those are the other two things that. I mean, I don't want to give a detailed review. There's lots of great reviews out there on this thing that they'll have way more time to go into it in, in print than we would here. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, the battery life has been really great. I've been using the heck out of this thing. I think it's the lack of a cellular radio that's probably making the battery life really, really good. I don't have numbers, but I can tell you that when this thing arrived, 
I haven't charged it yet and it, and I've been using it a lot and it's still got like a third of a charge left. So that's good. And the screen, it is not a retina display. It is not going to be as clear and as crisp as your iPad with a retina. But what is? That's the best screen like in the whole world on one of these devices. But this is better than the iPad one uh, to my to my eyes. It's better than my kid's iPad. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's still a very good screen next to a retina. I think everything is is a bit blah next to a retina display, though. But I don't think they're billing this as a retina display, are they? They're calling it. They have some other name for it. We talk. It's about not that. clear type. That's app, that's Microsoft's right. re- repurposed terms. That retina, yeah. It's a nice screen. It's not yeah, a bad screen for yeah, two hundred like, bucks. It's great. As I said on past shows, they're just going to be called screens eventually. This right. transition period will be over, and then, as I think I also said eventually, it's just going to be so weird for developers to have on the uh, iOS and Mac platforms anyway to have all of their resources with at two x in the file names. Right. And you know what's what's interesting to me is, and I haven't heard a lot of people pointing this out, uh, but what I will say is, if if the if if you're considering getting an iPod Touch for 199 bucks, and you're not specifically set on getting uh, something that's running iOS, in other words, if you don't care, if you just want like a cool device that you can do stuff with and watch Netflix with and whatever, I actually think this might be a really great choice for you. If if you maybe you don't you know maybe you want a little bit of a bigger screen or a little bit of a bigger device you know you can easily do thumb typing on this thing, uh, which is a little bit more of a challenge I think you know for 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 an iPad and if you're thinking man maybe I want an iPod Touch or do I want this other thing I don't know we'll have to see what people like but I like it I'm surprised to like it because <laughs> I love iOS but it's a good it's a good device. You know, the platform lock-in effect. Like, so I'm, I'm, I get the platform lock-in effect for iOS. Yeah. Where when I think about the Nexus, I'm like, well, but what do I do with my iPad? I just watched a bunch of shows on the HBO Go app. Is there an HBO Go app for for Android? I don't even know. And it's like that uncertainty of like, yeah, yeah but can I get all my content? Can I, you know, or especially if you made an invest, I don't buy stuff of iTunes if I can help it because of the lock-in factor. But especially if you made a big investment in movies and TV shows that you can play on your Apple TV and you can play all your iOS devices and like you're in that ecosystem. You're like, all right, I buy this Nexus. Can I watch all my uh, iTunes purchase movies? No. So, yeah. Now, I, there is an HBO, by the way, because I looked at this, there is an HBO Go app. It is available on Google Play. It is incompatible with the Nexus 7. That's lame. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why, but it is. I'll even put that into the show notes. I'm sure that will be updated. I, I'm positive it will be updated, so. David Smith in the chat room says, once we get used to at 2X and everything, Apple will introduce at 4X. I think we're, prob- <laughs> we're probably getting close to the limits of human visual acuity. Uh, so I'm not, maybe at 4X is out in the distant, distant future, but I don't think it will be such a pressing need as it is for at 2X. Uh, but it, that'll be just be even weirder because like eventually what I'm getting at is eventually the 1X resources will just not exist because, you know, you'll be developing an application for for uh mac os 10 10.22 or something or 10.11 or whatever number comes you know distant future five years from now and you'll say well this doesn't run on any machines that had a 1x screen like you can't even hook up a 1x monitor to any mac this will run on it's even worse than ios like you know they don't even apple doesn't even make any devices that are 1x screens and this will not run on any of the old devices with 1x screen so why in the world am i including the regular resources anyway and that means all your resources have at 2x in the file names and it just doesn't make any sense you're like what are we doing here like what at 2x is maybe the apple will say from, from now forward you actually have to put at 1x in the file names if you want them to be 1x and then without anything that's just the 2x version because we've, we've crossed the the rubicon or whatever the expression is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right 
First sponsor. Should we do the first sponsor? Sure. Jeez, we went we went through one follow up item. All right, go ahead. That's that. It's gonna be a good show. God. Gonna be a very good show. Our first sponsor today is Squarespace. Brand new Squarespace is out. Squarespace six. I've been using this thing in secret. I don't know how secret their beta has been, uh, but I've been using it for a while now, and I love it. Love it. Uh, this is this is what a lot of people have been waiting for. And by the way, you can just go to squarespace.com slash five by five and you will you'll be able to sign up for this. You don't need a credit card to try it out. You don't make any kind of long commitment to that. But if you do decide that you want to try it, there's a code for you. Dan sent me seven, the number seven. I'll give you 10% off whatever you do. Let me tell you about it. Totally new design, brand new templates. It's got drag and drop. So it works just like your OS when you want to design layouts and things like that. It's really amazing what you can do and and what they've been able to build. Uh, Perfectly clean code. So if you do SEO, if you care about things, oh, and it's responsive design, go to bigweek.co and shrink that thing down <laughs> and it'll, it'll look great no matter how big or small the browser goes. And it's already built in. It's built into all their templates. So if you're worried about that kind of thing, if that matters to you, it's done. Well, everything is done. They do all the hosting. If you sign up for a year or two, not only do you get uh, their discounts that they build into this 20 and 25% respectively, and then a, another 10% with my code, uh, but you also get a free domain name. And you can do so much moving the content around. I'm just looking at this now. I'm thinking, well, what should I talk about? Uh, oh, they've got all the built-in social uh, account connectivity, sharing settings. They added a feature for me, apparently, that uh, lets you properly link a story. So if you're linking, doing a little link blog thing and you want the title in the RSS feed to link externally, some sites don't let you do that. They, of course they let you do that. It's so much built into this. I, I, I could talk about this a lot. I'm very excited about it. I think it's great. So if you sign up for a year, you get 20% off. Sign up for two years, you get 25% off. And you get a free domain name with both of those. But if you're not sure, you just want to spend, you know, 10 bucks a month for the standard plan, use my code. We use my code anyway. Dan sent me seven and you get 10% off. And go check them out. Squarespace.com slash five by five. Support the show. Thanks to those guys. Someone named Nielsen on Twitter says, there's no need to specify at 2x. The at 2x is only for backward compatible. I think he means compatibility. Maybe he's, what, he's, what he's saying is if you just make the 2x size version and just don't put at 2x in the file name, when NS image goes to load your image, it will just find that one and load it and use it. I was under the impression that uh, NS image will look for the version with at 2x and treat it as doubled and show it you know, in that way. But if it finds one without the 2x, it will assume it's uh, you know, the 1x version. And... Uh, show it at its actual size. Uh, someone who is a an iOS or Mac, you should ask this to Marco next time. Okay, uh, uh, this is a good question. Write it down in your notes that you the non-existent notes that you don't have. No, I take a lot of notes. Remind you when the next show time you have a show with Marco, ask him what is the actual behavior if you took like a double scaled image. You know, if you just took one of your two X images, you deleted the one X image, you removed the two X from the image. Does your app just run exactly as it did before? Uh, I'm sure it depends on which particular API you're using. I just gave NS images one example, but there's lots of APIs where you feed an image into some part, part of the uh, OS. Well, he listens to this, so I have, yep. a note, I have a note to ask him. Pete Burtis says, if you don't have a 1X image, you don't need the 2X in the file name. iOS Mac just scales whatever gets to the size it needs. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think about, again, a developer know better than that. I'm trying to think of how, how it knows whether it should be displayed at its native size or whether if you're it should be displayed at its size and points maybe that maybe there is no choice maybe it's always displayed as its size and points like how does it know whether 
the the a five twelve by five twelve pixel image should be displayed as one twenty eight points by one twenty eight points, or displayed as five twelve points by five twelve points. How does it make that decision? Is it in the API? Do you write the stuff in? I don't know. Uh, so anyway, I'll leave that to Marco instead of speculating wildly about it. But thanks for that real time Twitter follow up from various peoples. Uh, next bit is from Lucas Mathis. Uh, he asks about uh, the Ouya. My comments about the Ouya console, mm-hmm. uh, specifically about Ben Kuchera's article. Uh, describing all the things that might not be ideal about the UI console. And Ben mentioned, and I also talked about the idea of Android fragmentation uh, in the article, how, how that would affect the Ouya. He says that Android fragmentation is a problem because developers can't just create an Android app, test it on one or two or three phones, and submit it to the Google Play Store. Uh, that's the typical you know, fragmentation. Because you have to say, oh, does it work on this device? Does it work on that device? Does it, you know, it's, it's a pain for developers to test. He says, but the Ouya isn't an Android phone. It's not another device developers have to test on in order to make sure that their task list works fine on all tablets and platforms. Clearly, Android devs making a touchscreen app don't expect that app or game to run on the Ouya unaltered. The Ouya won't have even have reg- the regular Android store. So he's saying that this, the Ouya isn't affected by fragmentation because it's clearly not part of the existing Android ecosystem where it's like, oh, now another device to test on. Uh, I think this is just a matter of semantics of like, you know, is, is fragmentation hurting or helping the Ouya and is it bad? Is fragmentation bad? Good. The Ouya frag, I think the Ouya fragments, further fragments the Android platform with Android in scare quotes because Android is not really a platform as we discussed last time. Android is an enabling technology really. But uh, when people hear that the Ouya is based on Android, they get the feeling that this might be an advantage because, hey, people already have Android ports of that game and since this thing runs android there's a better chance of getting that game on here like there's the, there's the technical understanding of what android actually is and what's in, involved in, in bringing a game to a platform and then there's the thing of just well by using the word android we think of it as this platform even though we know that it really isn't even in the places where it's supposed to be like on phones it's very difficult to deploy on all android phones and that just doesn't happen but here is an even worse one like as as uh lucas points out that it's no one, you're not taking anything from a touchscreen phone and putting it on the Ouya. So the fact that you have, uh, oh, we already ported our game to Android. That's probably better than nothing. It's better, than, maybe better than starting from zero, but sometimes it might just be barely better than starting from zero. Because if you have an entire game built around touch, like maybe you can't bring that game at all to the Ouya uh, because there's just, there's just no touch at all. And so, the, oh, hey, it's Android. Isn't that great? It's Android. Like, I mean, it makes me think that Everything that's on the Android platform, like, oh, so I have this, in, uh, you know, th- there's an Android port of this app, or Android has a lot of cool apps, or I love Android, stuff like that. If, they just, if you just replace Android with Linux, which is more or less accurate, uh, with, but people used to be doing back in the days, like, uh, people say, oh, you know, I, I, this, this is available on Linux. Uh, do you think it will run on every device that runs Linux? Like, dishwashers probably run Linux at this point. Like, the Linux is everywhere. You use Linux to enable all sorts of devices, and no one talks about the Linux platform, because there is no such thing. I mean, my, my TiVo runs Linux, and I'm pretty sure anyway. It's hard to tell sometimes. Like, everything runs Linux, but no one has the expectation that I wrote an app for Linux. Therefore, it can run on any device that runs Linux. It just doesn't happen. And right. Android is getting to be like that as Android is used in maybe not dishwashers quite yet. But there's probably some Samsung fridge running Android in South Korea. Someone, if we have any Korean listeners, they can tell me. Like, it's not a platform. Uh, and But there is a thing that we call Android, that we think of like a platform, and that's the thing that Google is trying to run on phones and stuff. Uh, so I think fragmentation is a problem because it, it for the Ouya simply because of the confusion about what does Android mean. When I use that word in my in my uh, device, 
there are possible good connotations, possible bad ones, and possible neutral ones. And the impression is that people get is mixed when, when you hear that. Uh, he gives another example. He says, that, oh, yeah, it's not fragmenting the Android market any more than the Dreamcast fragmented the Windows CE market. For those that don't know, uh, the Dreamcast, uh, there was some cooperation between Microsoft and Sega. This was back before the Xbox. And a part of that cooperation was that Microsoft wanted Dreamcast uh, to use Windows CE. CE stood, stood for Consumer Electronics, I believe, uh, which was like a stripped-down version of Windows way back when. They wanted it to use Windows CE as its operating system. And this was kind of unprecedented because consoles up to that point had used some crazy little custom embedded operating system written by the console maker, surely not a big full-fledged bloated thing like Windows. And even Windows CE, which was a stripped-down version of Windows, seemed heavyweight. Uh, so and that's like saying, oh, well, but if the Dreamcast is going to use Windows CE, isn't that fragmenting the Windows CE market? Well, no, no one thought of that because it's like, well, obviously you're making a Dreamcast game that has no relation to making a Windows game, even though they both supposedly run Windows CE. Uh, but as far as I know, most Dreamcast games did not use the Windows CE as their OS. You could, you'd put the OS on the disk with the, with the game, and Sega had its own like smaller... Uh, with, uh, more, I don't know, lighter weight operating system, more traditional console operating system that I think most Dreamcast games use the the Sega one and didn't use Windows CE. Uh, but that that this topic made me think of Windows as a gaming platform, which then as today, like the PC gaming platform, it's very fragmented. Think about the PC gaming. If you want to write, I'm writing a PC game and it's 1997. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, that means you're targeting devices with different size screens, different CPU speeds, different numbers of CPUs, different amounts of RAM, different input devices. It is way more fragmented than Android. At least Android, if you write an Android phone game, there's some limitations. Like on a PC game, the, the variance in CPU speed, RAM, and, and screen size, and video card capabilities, and GPUs, is just amazing, immense. Uh, but PC gaming... Back before, uh, you know, in the previous millennium, PC gaming was big in the PC market, but it's not big the way mobile games are big today. Like, among PC users, gaming on them was a popular pastime, but how many people had PCs and how many people played games on them versus how many people have mobile phones and play games on those? And But the reason I thought of this is because, so, all right, so the PC market was fragmented even worse than the Android market was, uh, but it was still the dominant gaming platform, right? It seemed to me that the sweet spot for gaming, at least on fragmented platforms, tends to be technically undemanding games. Like, what, what do you think the most commonly played Windows game is? Solitaire. Yeah, easy. So second place, probably Minesweeper. Minesweeper. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that's, you know, who plays games on PCs? Well, everybody has PCs. I have it on my desk. I have it at home. Do you ever play Solitaire on it? I bet you do. I bet you played Minesweeper. Like, because they're undemanding. And, and Solitaire like, would run on every single Windows PC. You know, so Angry Birds, I bet, will run on every single Android phone. Maybe it's a little bit more demanding there. But like, as, the, as your platform gets more fragmented, it becomes very difficult to be successful with a game that takes, with, with like a, a game that takes advantage of the best technology available. Uh, and the opposite end of that spectrum are game consoles, which historically have not been fragmented at all. You get a Super Nintendo, and that's it. That's the Super Nintendo. There's not 17 varieties of those with different amounts of CPUs and stuff like that. I mean, they would try to extend them with like a little extra chip on the Star Fox cartridge and stuff like that for Mode 7 graphics. Like They've you know tried to give incremental advances in technology, but for the most part, 
the console that you got was the console that you got and it ran out of its life and that's all it was. And so game makers knew exactly what they were getting. Everybody who says they have a Super Nintendo, I know what they have. They have a minimum, they have this. And, uh, and especially for the first two years of the console life or whatever, there's probably not going to be any variants at all in it. So we can make a game that wrings every ounce of power out of these things. We can make a game that just barely gets the frame rate we want and we can be sure that no one has a slightly slower CPU. No one has slightly less RAM or all these types of things. Uh, now, the console games have been moving in the direction of the PC, like, oh, I don't know how big their hard drive is. Do they have a hard drive? Do they not have a hard drive? How big is their hard drive? You know, uh, and the, the extension things like that. Do they have the Wii Motion Plus accessory? Does it have the regular remote? Right. So that's like fragmentation in the console market. But compared to the PC market, it's not even close. So if you want that, that's how console games could look so good compared to PC games, uh, because based on the hardware specs, console games should look like crap because the PCs are like 10, 100 times more powerful. But the consoles don't change. And so the developers writing for the console can just really take advantage of every ounce of power that that thing has. Whereas when they write for the PC or the Mac or any other platform that has more variants, they have to hedge their bets and go, well, we could do this in a really much more efficient way, but we absolutely need this GPU feature. And uh, do we want to write a whole separate code pass for that GPU? Or do we just want to say, oh, let's just make one rendering engine that will run on all the GPUs with different amounts of quality, even though if we could only target like GPUs made in the last year, we could do something even more awesome. Uh, yeah, so that was quite a sidebar into fragmentation. But I, I hear your lawn guys now. That's not my lawn guys. It's like two houses away. Oh. Yeah, the lawn guys are everywhere. If it was my lawn guys, they'd be louder. <laughs> yeah, so frag- <laughs> fragmentation and gaming. I think they, they are linked in ways that I hadn't thought about before. Lucas mentioned that the, that, uh, uh, the comparison of Dreamcast fragmenting the Windows CE market. So I think that will be a new lens through which I view uh, gaming and gaming platforms. Fragmentation is such a terrible word, too. Like it's not it's not very descriptive, and I think when people hear it, they have different things in their mind. <laughs> so that's not good. Uh, here's a couple of final bits on the UI here. He says he thinks people might be overestimating what it takes to create this kind of hardware. That you can just buy stuff like this from Chinese manufacturers, practically already done, like a little hardware thing that runs Android. I don't know about the uh, how accurate that is, but I bet. The fact that it does run Android helps them with the hardware design because there are probably makers with CPUs and GPUs and bootloaders and everything else. That's like the Android ecosystem. This is like this is you know the Linux ecosystem. When there is an established enabling technology, that does help you. It's not so much a platform as an enabling technology that other people know about. So you're not like off on your own making this whole brand new thing from scratch. Uh, and I say that maybe the hardware isn't the hard part of this. And we said that last week. The hard part isn't probably building the hardware it's it's building the platform attracting developers supporting the developers getting a lot of people to buy the hardware uh, and that's another point that i heard uh, a couple places uh on twitter on the web and on podcasts everyone's excited about the Ouya kickstarter i just looked at the page before we started the show and it's up to 5.2 million last week wow. it was at 4.4 million and that's like wow boy that's they, they were asking for 950,000 and they're at 5.2 million they're they're wildly successful but how many Ouyas is that if you pledge 95 bucks, you get an Ouya, you know, so we can't, we can't know exactly who pledged under that limit and isn't getting an Ouya or whatever. But if you do the math, it's like 55,000 Ouyas or something, yeah. right? Yeah, and they said they were going to do, was it 80,000? They said in a follow-up particle, did you read that? No, I didn't. Like, that's their first, their first uh, manufacturing run? Yeah, uh, that they, they have committed, hold on, because there was, um, I always spell Ouya wrong. Okay, here it is. This is an article... Uh, on uh, here's a, here's an article on Mashable that discusses it. Uh, so here's what it says: 
Oya says it will deliver 80,000 units by March 2013, only eight months after the, the launch date. Recently released data shows that only 25% of the Kickstarter projects meet their delivery date, and that is compounded the more a project is overfunded. Uh, Oya has not released many images of their console or its user interface, and none of the controller. Uh, the uh, fact states that developers have only begun working on the user interface for the console. So uh, 80,000, they say that they, they're confident they will deliver 80,000. I'll put this into the show notes as well. You can find the show notes, by the way, at 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 77. And that's all the notes for today's show are, are there, all the links and notes. Yeah, so that's, we're talking about building your platform. What do you need to build a platform with all that supporting stuff? Like yeah. the hardware is the least of your concerns. But the, the big thing you need to, to build a successful gaming platform is you've got to get people who own your device because who's going to develop, a, you know, you need people to own the thing before people want to write the game for the thing. Like it's, it is a little bit of a chicken egg, but when you're an upstart like these guys, you really need to get it into the hands of a lot of consumers because then you can go to a game maker. Hey, bring your game over to our platform. You could potentially sell to 80,000 people. I mean that's not great. That's not a great. That's not a great story. It's a start, I guess. But like the the big boy consoles, they sell in the millions, right? Uh, and there's a competition about how many million per year that you sell or whatever. Like, oh, if you're if you're a low number of millions, fifty thousand. That's just nothing. Like, who's uh, you can develop for this platform and you'll be able to sell into a vast user base of, of eighty thousand people. That's a, that's a tough sell. They have many they have many challenges ahead of them. Uh, so Lucas says that uh, despite all this, he actually did back the project and he would like it to turn out well and become really popular. But really popular, like that's you got to sell more than 80,000 of those. Uh, so we'll see how they do. It, even if it just sells to 80,000, it's nice that the thing exists. And like I said, I think it has a, a, a bright future in being a uh, emulator type machine and stuff like that. But yeah. if you want to get the big names, they want to see the big audience. Uh, and the only way you can get them is not is like, well, I know it's not a lot of people, but can you just you know, you've got an Android port already. It wouldn't be that hard to bring it up. And maybe they're right and maybe they aren't. But it's like, well, sorry, our Android port is our Android game is entirely based on touch. So that's going to be a problem. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, all right. Unrelated follow up from. Ooh, it's a hyphenate. Yeah, let's try this. Oh, boy. Colby Gutierrez Craybill. Sorry about that, Colby. Uh, he says, my limited understanding of the HDMI specification is that it includes blacklists on both ends of the connection. If that's true, as soon as someone plays, oh, I guess this is related. As soon as someone plays close enough attention to who is distributing those, meaning the Ouya's, won't TVs and other output devices instantly start getting Ouya added to the blacklist as a content piracy measure? And if that's true, how would Ouya respond, or how could they respond? Right, so I don't know a lot about the HDMI spec, and I don't have time to look this up. But assuming this blacklist stuff is true, which wouldn't surprise me because all these specs are filled with bogus anti-piracy DRM crap. Uh, Ouya becoming popular enough to be noticed by these guys is probably beyond the wildest dreams of the Ouya people. Like, this is a massive success scenario. The, the Ouya sells in such numbers and so many people are using it to, to to play games and illegal content and emulate stuff or whatever that they get on the HDMI blacklist and <laughs> TV manufacturers start, like, that would be massive success for them. Uh, so, I, But I've never actually heard of this blacklist or heard of it being used, uh, despite the fact that many current and past game consoles can show pirated video and can run, it could be hacked to run MAME ROMs and stuff like that. So I don't think this is probably a concern. Uh, and it could be that like once, once you become popular enough, once your game console device becomes popular enough to be noticed by people who might consider blacklisting you, the company that makes 
the product is so big and powerful that you can actually put up a fight. Like, for example, no one's going to try to blacklist the PlayStation 3 from the HD, from this potential HDMI blacklist that may or may not exist because you'd have Sony to contend with, right? And so Sony would be like, go ahead, blacklist the PlayStation 3. That will make Sony televisions, which won't blacklist it, even more valuable because right. Sony tells TVs too. So we're not going to blacklist ourselves. Uh, so I just think that's not a thing that happens. I don't think it's a, it's a particularly big concern. So don't lose any sleep over the Ouya being uh, put on the HDMI blacklist. But who knows? Maybe, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the small guys get screwed by the blacklist and the big guys don't. Uh, but I just think it will be beneath the attention of anybody to bother with, with that at all. Someone asked in the chat room about uh, why Kickstarter is so popular. And this next bit of follow-up is actually on topic. So lucky day for that person. This is from Eric Portis. He has three hypotheses mm-hmm. about the Penny Arcade Kickstarter's non-runaway successness. That's his hyphenate there. Uh, why, why has the Penny Arcade Kickstarter, despite the wild popularity of Penny Arcade and their general all-around awesomeness, why has their Kickstarter not just crushed records like the Ouya one and stuff like that? Uh, so here are his theories. Uh, first is people are more willing to pay for tools than content. And this is generally true, but especially true on Kickstarter. Now, I'd, I'd rephrase this reasoning as hardware. People feel better about giving money for a physical thing than for paying for something that they consume through some combination of light or sound only. I was trying to come up with a definition, but that's basically what it comes down to. Is it something that I can feel with one of my senses that is not just light or just sound or some combination of them? Then I feel like I should pay money for it. I get a plastic thing in the mail filled with electronics. I get a, a, you know, a physical metal dock that I put my, you know, a thing. Everyone's okay with paying for things. It's right. just a, you know, a question of the pricing. Non-things... We, you know, I wonder if this is an evolutionary thing or a cultural thing or a combination, but non-things, people are just not that into paying money for it. They don't get as excited about it, you know. And what's the difference? Oh, that involves at least one extra sense, touch. Now I can actually touch that. Maybe you don't even touch it. Maybe you put it under your TV, you know, and you, you just use the, the controller or whatever. At least you can touch the controller. But it's the idea that I'm paying. If something looks like it was made for matter, <laughs> it comes to me. It's like, well, obviously I can't get that for free. But if something's made of bits, it's like, now, did, you know, did they really make any me- effort to make these bits? Like, by me having it, his, the whole thing with, uh, I didn't really get into this, but talking about uh, copyright uh, infringement versus theft and Marco's whole moral thing on, on, the, uh, on consuming pirated content and everything. I'm not the pedant, one of the pedants who gets upset about being piracy, being called piracy because they're, you know, you're not boarding someone's boat and killing people and actual real pirates are terrible. Like, that's silly, right? But there is something to be said for the idea that uh, like, I don't like calling it theft so much because when you take it, the other person still has it. Like it's, it's different. It's different in that particular. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's different morally, but there is a difference to it. It's like, it, you know, the, the normal concept of theft is if I steal your PlayStation 3, you don't have it anymore. I have it and you don't have it. I stole it from you. You have a loss. I have a gain. Uh, if I take your copy of some digital movie or a piece of software, you still have it. Now we both have it. And that changes the calculus of, of the value, not the moral, moral calculus, I'm not talking to that, but, but the value calculus, of like how much am I willing to pay for this? And, you know, right or wrong, it factors into people's minds. So if you have a Kickstarter that's about something that you know, if you were to get it, they would still have it. Like, it's weird to you. You're like, why am I even paying you money for this? Now, we all know as creators of this stuff that it takes immense amount of effort, like, you just as much if not more effort to create those intangible things like websites or pieces of software or whatever like it, you know it's probably easier to build a wooden chair than it is to make a really great ios app right but 
we'll pay, you know, 400 bucks for the wooden chair and we'll pay 99 cents for the iOS app that some per- person spent hundreds of hours and tremendous amounts of knowledge and they had to go to school to learn all this theory and just it, all because when I take the chair from you, you don't have it anymore, and now I have it, and now we put more value on that. It's like, well, someone had to carve this chair out of wood. Someone had to saw these pieces, and this is a real thing. And when I get it, someone else loses it, so I'm going to pay for that privilege. But the game that someone spent all this time and money on, uh, maybe two bucks. I don't know. It's not that great of a game. Maybe, maybe three bucks. <laughs> it's such an but, inconsistency, and you totally nailed it, too. I, I mean, it. you think about the amount of time that it takes not just to write it. I mean, you're talking about writing a game, but to, but to learn how to do it. You know, just to make something that's decent, that people, oh, it's a dollar ninety nine. That's a lot of money. Dollar ninety nine. Yeah, I mean, it is recognizing <laughs> one part is that when you buy a second copy of that piece of software, the person who wrote the game doesn't have to write a second game, whereas the chair guy's got to make you your second chair, right? So, but the, our our entire common sense reasoning about uh, exchanging money for goods. And again, whether it's uh, evolutionary or cultural or some combination of what, just totally programmed for physical stuff. And this virtual stuff is just screwing everything up. Uh, and we don't know quite how to think about it because that is one of the factors. How much it was, you know, it's, like I said, it's probably way harder to make that iOS game. But when I buy the second copy, I don't feel like the person who wrote the game is writing a second game for me like they already did that work. You know, that's part of the reason people like doing software. You do the work once and then you can sell multiple ones. But on the other hand, Books is a great example. The, the guy writes the book once, and you sell multiple copies, and someone has to manufacture that book. But manufacturing is such a minuscule part of the books. It's almost like I write the book once, and if it becomes a bestseller, I get a huge amount of additional revenue, and I don't have to write any like just from that one effort that I that I took to write the book. But you, people still get a physical thing, like, well, now I've got the book, and it's not in the store anymore, right? Uh, so, I think he's right in this number one reason is that I mean, hardware is a computer centric term, but like, if it's a physical thing. There's none of this weird confusion about the value and the morality and, and the, the possibility of getting a free copy and really how much effort does it take for that person if I get an extra copy of it. If it's a physical thing, it's straight up the middle. Everyone's familiar with that. There's none of this hemming and hawing. And when it comes to paying money for something that's not a sure thing, like in Kickstarter, you know, uh, selling a dream, the title last episode, if you want to buy into that dream, it's great not to have those weird concerns about uh, a, a weird value judgments about this virtual goods uh type of stuff that just it, it eliminates entirely it's a physical thing i understand it i want it i don't want it i pay for it so i think that's true uh second reason is kickstarter is about about getting people excited about possibilities this is again eric portis's uh reasons there's an excitement in funding something that doesn't exist yet an excitement that just isn't there when we get to pay for something that already exists he gives the example of uh paying to get through the new york times paywall right uh kickstarter projects are about helping to build a thing with your money instead of poking a hole in an artificial wall someone has put around something that's already been built. So this is the, uh, you know, if something already exists and you just want to charge me money for it, it's not, and, and if it's like, I already know what it is and I've already consumed it and you think, well, I just want to pay money for this instead of running ads against it. That's not as exciting as, hey, here's something that doesn't actually exist yet, but if you give me money, I'll make it. I'm bringing a new thing into the world. And uh, that makes me think even more of something we talked about in the last show about the Pentagon Kickstarter that I, I didn't go this far, but I will now go this far. Uh, that I think the Pentagon Kickstarter might have actually been better turned inside out. So for those who didn't listen to the last episode, I just want to review the Pentagon Kickstarter was they will remove ads from their site uh, in exchange for various amounts of money. And if they reach their goal, they remove one ad. But then there's like the stretch goal of removing all ads from, from the Pentagon website and everything involved with them. Right. Uh, 
but along the way, there's little prizes. If we make this amount of money, we'll do this. If we make this amount of money, we'll do that. And some of the prize milestones are like, we'll make a little comic strip about this property that we haven't had time to address. And we'll do this, uh, you know, the, uh, this other reality show thing that we've been talking about. Like, those are the little perks. What if they had reversed it and said, we're having a Penny Arcade Kickstarter. And just to give one example, the goal, the goal of this Kickstarter is the strip search show. This is the show, there, uh, a reality show where a bunch of aspiring webcomic creators will compete in a sort of, you know, America's Got Talent type of competition or whatever on video. And they will make a show where webcomic artists compete against each other. What if that was the goal of the Kickstarter? And the perk goals were, and if we reach this goal, we'll remove this ad from our website. And when we reach the, the big stretch goal, we'll remove all ads. I think the Kickstarter might have actually done better if they had reversed it like that. Take all of the perks and make, or one of the big perks or whatever, and make it the goal, and, and then take the ad-removing stuff and make those the perks. Because that's about creating the new thing. I think a lot of the, the content on the Penny Arcade Kickstarter is exciting. Like, I, I want these new comic strips. I want to watch this reality show. But I don't feel like I'm funding that because the goal of the Kickstarter is the ad removal, which I'm not really that excited about. Uh, so that, that may be a uh, something they learned from this experience. We'll see yeah. how they go. Uh, did you look at what the... I don't have their... Let me see how the page open here. What, what are they up to now? Yeah, I've got it up now. 338,000 out of 250,000. So they've reached their first good perk goal, which is an original six-page automata strip. Yeah. I like that property. So that, but they have, you know, that's. Do you have the URL for that in the show notes yet, or shall I put it in there? I think it's already there. All right. So, uh, so it's good that we're getting one new thing out of this, and maybe that will sort of goose the uh, the enthusiasm for it. But I, but I think it's clear that the enthusiasm for removing ads is small. I think there is real, genuine enthusiasm for for these new pieces of content they yeah. com- they promised. It just should have been reversed. Should have been the other way around. Uh, Item number three from Eric Portis, or, uh, the reason the Penny Arcade Kickstarter is not doing as well as we all thought, is that specificity really matters. Uh, Penny, Arcade, uh, Penny Arcade Kickstarter is wildly successful because it's very easy to see cause and effect of what your money will actually do. Uh, I think there is a cause and effect in Penny Arcade. I just think effect is, isn't that interesting. But, uh, uh, but I think the specificity is important because it's like this big amorphous thing. Like It's obvious that Penny Arcade wants to do all sorts of things, and they feel like they've been prevented from doing them by the effort and time they must expend towards advertising. They're like, geez, that's the real barrier here. If we could just get rid of the ads, we could do all these cool things. So from their perspective, it probably makes sense to say, let's eliminate the ads because that's what's holding us up from doing all this awesome stuff that we would like to have time right, to do. Right, right. But from the, the you know, that's, that's amorphous. It's like, well, what do I get for this? Well, you get this strip and you might get this reality show and you might get this other thing, but maybe not because that's not really the goal. And if you reach the goal, you don't get any of those things because everything is past the goal and you have to get way past the goal to get the really good things that you want. And it's if they had really just concentrated, we are doing a reality show where webcomic artists will compete and we will be the judges. And at the end, uh, the prize is actually going to need the, the prize is, they say, a considerable cash prize and integration to the Penny Arcade offices for one year. If you are an aspiring webcomic artist, it, being to put under the wing of Penny Arcade and given the kind of exposure that, you know, that kind of exposure, you can't buy that. Like, that's invaluable because, you know, people who like Penny Arcade like webcomics. And if they pick you, that means the Penny Arcade guys think you have a good webcomic or are untalented and they're going to expose you to their entire audience. Like, that's that's the best you could possibly hope for for launching your career as a webcomic artist. So if they had just said, that's what we're doing. This is a Kickstarter for this show. It would be one specific thing. And then the perks are just nice to have. But now I think it's, the one specific thing they're doing isn't even that specific. And it's like, I mean, removing the leaderboard ad, that's, that's the goal. And then removing all ads is kind of the other goal. And it's just, it's not, 
It doesn't capture the imagination because it's not specific enough. Let's see what else he has to say. All right, so he says, the idea of changing the, the Penny Arcade business model so that the readers rather than the advertisers, the real customers, is just too fuzzy and large to generate a lot of excitement. Uh, I think the whole Kickstarter is fuzzy, not so much of that goal. I think that goal is just not very attractive, but yeah. So I continue to watch it. I still have not funded it. I came very close to funding it a couple of times because mm. I started thinking about it the inside out way. When you, say, thinking, when you say fund it, how much can you share? How much you were, what level you were thinking, considering doing? Just when, I was going, when I was going to fund it, I, I, what I start, what I do with all Kickstarters that I think about funding is I actually look at the little like pledge at this level and get this prize. And I said, is there a prize that's worth me spending like an extra amount of money for, like something that I actually want? Uh, I was not going to spend one dollar if I funded it, and I wasn't going to spend like thousand dollars. I don't have right. that kind of money laying around. But somewhere in between there, if there had been like a good prize for two hundred, I probably could have sold that to my wife. <laughs> and said, well, yeah, I funded them for 200 but I got this cool thing. Like, I would want to phone them at a level that, like, because I don't care so much about removing ads. So I wanted to be like, are you willing to pay $200 to get them closer to the possibility of doing one of the things that you really want them to do? But you're not guaranteed because your $200 is not going to put them over the line. So will you feel okay if you pay just $200? You get a bunch of stuff that you weren't interested in, like removing the leaderboard ad, but you also get some cool prize. Uh, and in the end, I didn't. I still didn't pull the trigger, but I came closer because I started thinking about it solely in terms of uh, the cool things that I wanted. But then I got depressed about the possibility of reaching like the reality show goal because it's so far away and the, the days are, are ticking down. And speaking of ticking down, the final piece of follow-up, believe it or not. Jesus, mm. it's 57 minutes of follow-up. All right. The final piece of follow-up is from Nick, who did not write in to provide his last name. Surprisingly, still wants to be just Nick, like Madonna. With at 2000nickels.com, who did the uh, analysis of hypercritical running time. And so during the past week, he's been doing more charts and more graphs of different 5x5 network shows with different line fitting and a bunch of statistic nerds mm -hmm. have been replying Very cool to him. stuff, right? Yeah, and doing all sorts of stuff that I don't understand because I don't remember anything about statistics from my education. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting. But there's one p bit that I pulled out, and I put this in the, uh, the show notes link. He finally said something that I can understand. Uh, he wanted to know... Uh, like, so I, I, had the, I had the thing where I said, I'm going to try to make shorter shows. Uh, I said that back in December or January. And so he has a, a trend line saying, uh, who, who made this comment? Someone made a comment about if, if current trends continue, eventually hypercritical will be running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because the shows will just get so long, they'll just blend into each other. And so we said, okay, can we extrapolate from the current run show, uh, show runtime trend? When will that happen? And the answer using the trend line through the all existing shows was 371 years from now. If current trends continue, hypercritical will be running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Obviously, I'll be dead by then, uh, so that's not very interesting. But what Nick did is said, okay, well, at some point, uh, I decided that, or, you know, I mean me, decided that I wanted to make shorter shows. So if I hadn't made that decision, if I hadn't decided I want to make shorter shows and then subsequently started to make them a little bit shorter... Uh, how soon would we reach the hypercritical singularity where it's running 24 <laughs> hours a day? If the old now, trend, is that the singularity? I thought singularity would be where the hypercritical show itself attains true sentience. Well, I don't like the term singularity. We've got a whole show about Kurzweil someday. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but the, the, if, if I hadn't made, t turned over a new leaf and decided I'm going to make shorter shows and actually did end up making them ever so slightly shorter, if we just merely extrapolate, as he, as he said, he did a linear, linear regression on episodes 35 through 50 to see if that trend had continued before we took a turn slightly downward. If that trend had continued, hypercritical would be running 24 hours a day, seven days a week in 69 years. 
which conceivably I could still be alive for. So I, I once again claim victory in my project to make shorter shows simply by the fact that I, I can now conceive, you know, if, if current trends had continued, I could conceivably be in front of this microphone my entire life. Uh, but now I've pushed it out to 371 years and that probably won't happen. So as he said, John's true goal is revealed and achieved. Hypercritical has stopped getting longer. <laughs> and that's all that counts. Yeah. Not necessarily shorter, but just not longer. Right. We just wanted, we just wanted to avoid that, uh, that singularity. Right. Because no one can take that much. It's just too much. Second sponsor is Hover.com, Simplified Domain Management. Get yourself, John, get yourself a great domain name. Okay, just do it. Get it. Do you have one? I have a bunch of bad domain names. <laughs> well, if you want a good one, .com, .net, I like the dots. When the .co became, and the .tv, I love those. I use the heck out of it. I've got so many of those now. It's becoming a problem for me. Hover.com, you can get all of those and more. And they make it incredibly simple to do that. There's a little search box. You type in the domain name you want. If it's available, you click the little plus box. You check out. You're done. If it's not available, they'll show you some alternatives. If you don't know what you want, you type in a few keywords. It will figure out a whole bunch of alternative names for you, showing you what's available. You pick them. You check out. You're done. That's it. You don't, you don't get signed up for a whole bunch of other garbage that you don't want. You don't, you don't have to opt out of a hundred different things. There's one checkbox. Would you like who is privacy on your domain? Yes, I would like that because it's free. So you check that box. It's actually probably checked already, but it doesn't cost you anything to have it because they don't charge for that. They have powerful domain editing. They have built-in DNS, unlimited domain name forwarding. They have bulk domain management so you can go in there and change all because you moved. You have a new physical address. Update all of your domains in one step. It's so easy to do this kind of stuff. And they've got a toll-free number, and they actually have human beings that pick up the phone and answer, especially with things like transfers, because that can get kind of kind of tricky. Well, they can handle the whole thing for you. They have a transfer valet service, which you would think would cost something, but that's free too. And it's 10% off if you use the code Dan sent me. Just go to hover.com slash Dan sent me, and you will get credit automatically applied to your account you can use it over and over again and get 10 percent off i would like to personally thank hover.com for making the experience of buying these domain names that i shouldn't be buying uh, such a simple easy process try it out the next time you want to register a name that's all i'm asking hover.com thanks to those guys for making the show possible you should tell hover.com they should go into the uh hosting business not not just uh domain names but actual you know Hosting plans. It would be nice. They do email hosting, which is something. Right. I like web hosting. So I'm thinking. Yeah, of. I know. I guess, I guess that's a crowded field, but. Well, so is domain name registration and they're, they're owning that. I know. Well, so they're doing well, as I'm saying. I like, I, like hover, I like Hover.com's domain name thing. I would like to see what they would do with hosting. They should take your advice. John yeah. is never wrong. Mm. All right. So for <laughs> topics, I have a bunch of stuff listed, but I'm just going to pick one of them because presumably... If not next week, then the week after, the show will become dominated by Mountain Lion stuff. Oh, right. So we should pick something as far away from Mountain Lion as possible. Well, I just want to get this in because by the time all the Mountain Lion shows are over, maybe I'll, this will not be relevant and no one oh, will care about it anymore. I get it. Uh, there are many choices here. But I said, I'm going to pick app.net. Do you know what that is? I have you, heard all about this thing. I have, right. uh, would like to hear what, what, yeah. what you think about this intelligent marketing <laughs> tool. 
<laughs> yeah. So that's she's all right. Well, I don't know where to even like. I'm not. I'm in, you're, in the you're spirit, lost for words. Yeah. In in the spirit of actually making these shows shorter, I'm going not going to give my usual amount of background on the net. I'm just going to try to walk through the weird things about it and assume that you can uh, go to the website and look up the stuff. So all right. Let's start with the man, Dalton Caldwell. If you go to app.net, as you did, you see this website that doesn't that looks confusing. It doesn't look like anything. Do I even have it up? Let me see. App.net. I don't. I don't know what this app.net. You know, http slash app.net slash. It's confusing to me. I'm assuming this is was a a pre-existing domain or they have another product i don't know it confuses me it says marketing tools for app developers i'm not interested in that i'm not an app developer i don't need to market my thing or whatever but then at the very top of the page it says looking for our new social platform project check it out and that like that's what i'm talking about not the whole rest of the site which i don't even know what the heck it is i'm talking about the thing that you link to when you go to the check it out link on the top thing yeah and that's join.app.net. So that's what I actually put in the show notes. Because I didn't want to put app.net in the show notes and someone will load it and go, what the hell is this? Right. Did they talk about this at all? No, we're not. All right. So if you go to join.app.net, you see Dalton Caldwell's smiling face and well, a video. You see, you see a big flat, a big square that's a rectangle that's, that <laughs> has the word flash in the middle. And then you click that. It's then, Vimeo. Come on. Then you see Vimeo. Yeah, I have flash in my browser. So I see the video. Right. Yeah, this is some text from the page. Uh, and this text is, does not make me feel good. Uh, but here it is. <laughs> App.net is a different kind of social platform. We're building a real-time social service where users and developers can come first, not advertisers. Our team has spent the last nine years building social services, developer platforms, mobile applications, and more. We believe that advertising-supported social services are so consistently and inextricably at odds with the interests of users and developers that something must be done. Help us create the service that we all wish existed. Now, I heard about app.net from seeing people tweet about it. And the first few tweets I saw looked like they were robo-tweets because they were from people who I know don't speak like in, you know, in PR speak. And it was like, I joined the movement, join app.net. Like no one I know would voluntarily write that. So it looked like some automated tweet. But I was seeing it from people who, you know, uh, who I know and respect, who I know are not into that type of thing. And then I sometimes have follow-up tweets from those people who was like, you guys should check out this, this join.app.net thing, seriously. Uh, and I was like, do you know that it, ju- that it just tweeted this bogus-looking thing in your Twitter stream, but now you're endorsing it? So uh, I don't remember if Marco was one of them, but I think Gruber was one of them. And a, a bunch of other people I know were, were tweeting and talking about both robo-tweeting and non-robo-tweeting about this thing. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to check this out. Uh, what the heck is this? Uh, so the page is confusing. Uh, it has like a little thing on it that looks like Kickstarter. You know, what currently says 994 backers, $68,200 of a $500,000 goal, and 24 days left. That's Kickstarter speak, right? But it's not Kickstarter. It's not a Kickstarter project. It's not at Kickstarter.com. And I don't still don't know what they're, what they're kickstarting. Help us create the service we all wish exists. Now, I understand the sentiment of, like, we've talked about this many times, of things that are supported by advertising, where you know you don't have to pay for it, but then you get sold to someone else as the valuable thing, and then as they pointed here, then then the the interests of the maker of this platform are not aligned with your interests because they want to sell you to advertisers, but you just want the service to be better. Uh, all that stuff, and this is coming to a head with the uh, the California knife in a back episode of uh, Build and Analyze, where Marco talked about the the new Twitter, the ominous uh, output from the Twitter people about third-party clients and API usage saying, seriously, guys, don't make Twitter clients. And we're all going, but but I love Twitter clients. Don't break Twitter clients. And they're like, no, we don't want you to do it. Like, you, you did a, good, a couple of good shows about that. 
Uh, that's making us all get fussy about this whole issue of like, boy, if only we paid for Twitter and, and we were their customers and they work for us, this wouldn't be such a complicated, fraught relationship here. And here's app.net saying, we agree, that's crappy. We want to do something better. Uh, so here are their, their bold bullet points. I think this is on that, that very same page. We are selling our product, not our users, not in all caps. We will never sell your personal data, content, feeds, interests, clicks, or anything else to advertisers. We promise. Thumbs up, right? Everyone loves that. You own your content. I like this one. App.net members will always have full control of their data. Members have the fundamental right to easily backup, export, and delete all their data whenever they want. Good. We will align our financial incentives with members and developers. We just talked about that. Uh, they, they want their interests and our interests to be aligned, so we, it's like a win-win type scenario. Uh, App.net employees spend 100% of their time improving our services for you, not advertisers. This is kind of a repetition of that, but we like that. Like they're saying, you know, if we don't have to spend our time trying to make advertisers happy, we can do things that you like because you are our customers. They say, we will operate a sustainable, predictable business. Like, this is starting to sound like um, every episode of Build and Analyze where Marco explains his business plan. Did, did you talk about that one where he did the Quora answer? I think uh, he tweeted about it. Yes, I think we did. Yeah, that was great. Like, so there was some question about uh, in Quora of some person. I'm confused about the business model, like readability versus Instapaper and stuff like that. And Marco wrote a one-sentence reply that was something like, uh, I sell my application and I, uh, for money and I spend less money than I take in. That was his business plan. That was his business model. And so, you know, one sentence, simple thing. And then the readability guy posted this longer, uh, after, after Marco posted that, the readability guy posted this longer thing that was much harder to explain. All right. So sustainable, predictable business. You pay us money. We provide you a service. We spend less money than we take in. That equals profit. That's how we stay in business. Nothing weird. Nothing like Twitter. Where we got, How do we monetize 80 bajillion Twitter users who don't pay us any money, right? Our most valuable asset is your trust. This is what app.site. You're like, yes, we like this. This is all good. Everything they say on this little page on these bold headings, we all agree with, particularly agree with now because this service that we all love, Twitter, is in this weird strait of flux and we're all concerned about it. But what are you actually making? What What is it that you're doing? What is it that sustainable business is going to be made around? What would I be paying money for? What are these people? Like the people who tweeted it, they're like, I pledged 50 bucks. I pledged 100 bucks. They they gave their money. They let this thing robo-tweet from their account. Uh, and then they followed it up by saying, this is good. What are they paying for? So here, they start finally getting to it eventually on this page. to say, as a member, I guess a member of app.net, you will have a new social graph and real-time feed that you can access from an app.net mobile application or website. It's like, please tell me what the hell you're making. Like that's, it's not completely marketing speak and business speak. A new social graph and real-time feed. Like, what are you making? It's finally the next sentence. They say, at first, the user experience will be very similar to what Twitter was like before it turned into a media company. Finally, okay, you're making Twitter, but not Twitter. That's, that's all I needed to hear. You should have put that as the first item. We're going to make something that's like Twitter, but not crappy. That's what we're going to do. That's our project. And then like the next sentence, they, they just th- they go back into the land of uh, Marco calls it California. But that's unfair to California. This well, Mar- is like Marco is a backer speak. of the project, by the way. Yeah. I mean, so I guess he was one of the people I saw that was that was saying fan. So the next sentence is on a forward basis, comma. We were like on a forward basis. Like, come, come on. Can we like I think they just need a copy editor because you can't. Well, all, what they're doing is good, but the, the language they use is the language of business weasels, and that is not good. Uh, so my impression from the website was like business weasely, right? And then the robo tweets, and that upset me as well. Uh, 
I think we'll get back to the robo tweets in a second. So this is the, the, the next item in here is uh, something I pull up from their fact, which is why aren't you using Kickstarter? Which is another confusing question. I'm glad they have it in the fact, but it's still kind of buried. Like it looks like a Kickstarter page, but like is this like a a is this a phishing attack where it's not a Kickstarter page, but it's supposed to look like one? And if I give them money, they'll be stealing it. No, the fact says. We wish we could. We love Kickstarter. Unfortunately, the Kickstarter terms of service explicitly prohibits us from raising money for this kind of service. Right. And I read this last week from the Kickstarter guidelines. Item number one, funding for projects only. A project has a clear goal, blah, blah, blah. A project is not open-ended. Starting a business, for example, does not qualify as a project. So they can't use Kickstarter. Uh, that's the answer. That's why it's not a Kickstarter. But the answer to that you know, being three pages down in the fact is not particularly helpful. But there you have it. Uh, the payments is a little bit different than Kickstarter. As far as I can tell, you can pay $50, $100, or $1,000. And I don't think you can do anything in between those amounts. That's kind of simplifying, I guess. So for yeah. $50, you get to claim your username. Uh, so in this app.net service, which is going to start out looking a little bit like Twitter if you squint, but could expand into many more things and blah, 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 this will reserve your username. So you will help fund the project. You will help move them towards their goal of half a million dollars. And you will be assured to have your username, whatever username of your choices. For $100, you get access to the developer tool chain and you get API access. So if you want to write a client for this potential burgeoning platform, pay pays $100 to back the project and you can be a developer. And for $1,000, you get a personal meeting with Dalton Caldwell, which is probably not quite as, as good as the, what is it, like 25 grand? You get to have lunch with Mike and Jerry from Penny Arcade. Uh, $1,000, you get to have lunch with Dalton Caldwell. I'm assuming you have to supply your own uh, travel expenses. Now, the tweet thing kind of makes some sense if you back solve for it because they're trying to link your Twitter username to you. Like, and I'm not sure if that's part of the claim process or just part of like they want to know what your Twitter name is, but you have to prove that you are the owner of that Twitter account. And how do you prove that you own a Twitter account? Well, you have to, you know, put some specially formatted message in it and they can have some robot go and scrape it and say, okay, well, I know that you own this Twitter account because our instructions said to tweet this thing. Uh, and, and if you did that, that shows that you're the owner of that account. Same way, you know, you put some little uh, gremlin thing or whatever they're called on a web page to show that you own it, right? But that doesn't have to be something that happens in public. Uh, that it wasn't a robo-tweet because if you go through the process, it would say, okay, now please tweet the following text or actually it has a button that you click and it brings you to the Twitter website and the tweet is pre-filled in for you. And it doesn't automatically tweet it, it just puts the text there. And then it's up to you to hit the button and decide if you want to tweet that. But if you don't tweet that, you won't link your Twitter account to that thing and they won't know what your thing is. And I think you won't, they won't let you claim your username at that point. Uh, so uh, the, the problem with this is that the, twi the tweet was like, I love app.net and you should check it out. It's really cool and blah, blah, blah. And people just tweeted it as is because they figured, well, you know, whatever robot they have looking for it, it it's, it, you know, people, maybe they didn't think it over that much. But they said, look, this is what they want me to tweet and I have to tweet it and I have to decide either I click that button or I don't. But I do want to do this because I want to link it up to my account because I want to claim my username. So I guess I'll just click the button. Uh, <laughs> and my first uh, thought was like, you're trying to be the white knight and be, you know, we don't want to be evil and we don't want to be like Twitter, but your webpage is all full of business speak. And if you sign up and decide to give money, you have to do this tweet thing. That's crappy. Uh, now, this may surprise you, but even after all of this, this is the this is the influence of your peers, Dan, I guess. Right. After all these people who, who I know and respect their opinions, that they, you know, not only did the robo tweet and paid money for it, I did too. I said, okay, I trust these guys' opinions uh, enough that, you know, it's just plain old peer pressure. Like, I think these guys, these guys have been sufficiently convinced, despite all the things that we all agree are crappy. I think it's probably because all of us are so desperate for 
the service that we want. Like we basically want something like Twitter, but not tied up in the same kind of weird business relationship. Like we wanted to be like it was back in, you know, January of 2007. It was just us on Twitter and we enjoyed it and we didn't have any fear about Twitter going and we got to use third party clients. And like, we want that so badly that despite all these things, the fact that these guys come out here and say, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to do what you guys all want us to do. All you weird tech nerds, you know, the rest of the world doesn't care about this, but you tech nerds, this is what you want. This is what we want. Help us do it together. So I signed up 50 bucks. I claim my username. That's another good thing because they know nerds are obsessed with claiming their usernames. I too am obsessed with claiming my username. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I got to the tweet thing though, I knew at that point that you didn't have to tweet the exact text. And so the, the, uh, so if you go if you go to their page, are you on the page to join that app.net page? Mm-hmm. Scroll down to the words about app.net. Do you see that section? Yes. And it shows tweets from people. Yes. Uh, number one is John Gruber, blogger. Right. right. And he says, thanks for trying something awesome. And yeah. there's Robert Scoble and there's all these other people. And there's Marco. There's the Marco's face. Like all the smart people, I hope I backed app.net, right? Right, sure. The one thing I tweeted in response to, you know, to claim my username yeah. was not is not featured on that list. For what I think are obvious reasons, my one tweet was, hey, app dev, hey, app.net dev, auto-tweeting ads is one of the evil things that you should be dedicated to avoiding. That tweet is not featured on the homepage, that is, and that was my, my username claiming tweet. Uh, but nevertheless, I backed the project. I wouldn't give Penny Arcade any of my money, but within a day of seeing everyone else back this and reading about what it actually is, despite all of the, the uh, warning flags, 50 bucks. There you have it. Yeah. And so... Since these guys are nerds and are, are like-minded, despite all their, their problems, like they have blogs and facts and stuff like that. This is an excerpt from one of the blog posts that I think was also written by Dalton Caldwell under the heading of We Will Make Mistakes. A lot of folks didn't like the way we implemented our Twitter username claiming process. Some helpful folks direct, uh, started directly telling us they didn't like it, and we had a public conversation about it. Within a couple of hours, we rolled out some new code with their explicit suggestions, and we haven't received a single complaint about it since. There were a few internet celebrities making fun of us for this, and that's understandable, but I would ask, doesn't our behavior of listening and fixing the issue raised by the community demonstrate that we are following our core values? I think they did respond pretty well. They clarified that you don't have to tweet the exact text, which is why I was able to tweet my snarky (laughs) uh, username claiming tweet, right? Uh, And I like the fact that they did it in public and weren't defensive and addressed the issue in, in, in a, in a, you know, quickly and didn't have some stupid press release and didn't ignore us. And like it shows that they're kind of us. But the big worry about this for me and I think for everyone else is that the dumbness of doing what they initially did apparently was not obvious to them. Right. And that's what it's not so much like thumbs up for what you're doing. Thumbs up for being responsive, but like, how did you not see that? Like, how did you think we're going to go out with this and we're going to get like our target audience is tech nerds who even know what the hell we're talking about. And we're going to make them auto tweet some embarrassing looking thing or not auto tweet, but we're going to make them click the button to tweet something that's embarrassing. Like, why did you think that was going to fly? And this is like, oh, damn, like maybe they <laughs> we question it makes us question their judgment, right? Not not their intentions. They're clearly, you know, good guys and they're trying to do something we all agree on, but it makes us question their judgment. And there are similar worry triggers in in the paragraph that I just read to you. <laughs> for for example, the word received is spelled with an extra E and the mm-hmm. word rolled has three L's in it. And that's not good, guys. Like spell check it before you like that's attention to detail. Does it really matter? Who cares if they spell things wrong? Whatever. But there to be on the same page with with the nerds that they seem to want to be connected with, you need to have certain things. You need to have a sense of style, a sense of taste, attention to detail, shared values, and like they have some of that, but some other parts of it are worrying, you know. 
Here's, here's how that thing continues. These kinds of mistakes will happen again. Maybe next time it'll be harder to fix or take more time. All I can say is that we're listening. And if folks want to constructively push back and suggest a better way to do things, we will do our best. There's no chance we will be able to make everyone happy, but I want to believe we will be able to convince folks that we're a part of a two-way conversation. I think they're succeeding in that. And I, it's just, it's definitely, definitely a, mixed, a mixed bag with app.net because as much as strongly as it is interesting that they've become the focus of this desire that's in the community, you know, in, you know, caused by Twitter and other companies. And they, they're kind of like the, uh, what do you call it? Like the little, I don't know what you call it, like the germ that causes crystallization around it. Does anyone in the chat room know what the proper scientific term uh, that is? If you have a, a, like a super saturated solution or something, and you have some tiny little speck inside there, all of a sudden crystallization forms around that. That's like what app.net is. I just, you know, someone says seed. I don't know what the right correct term is, but, they're in the right place at the right time with the right message to our particular tech nerd audience. Uh, just part of me wishes like <laughs> that, they, that they just got everything right. I mean, I know maybe that's too high of a bar, but they, they, a lot of things they're getting wrong in ways that are worrisome. And yet, despite that, despite all of that, we, we want so badly for this uh, to be something that becomes, that, 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 you know, we're all willing to put, I mean, and again, you know, for for rich people like Marco using that old trope, maybe fifty dollars isn't a big deal. But no. I, I, Penny Arcade, which I love way more than these App.net guys, I will, <laughs> I will, I will predict that I will never love App.net more than I love Penny Arcade, and yet didn't fund the Penny Arcade Kickstarter. Almost instantly, relatively speaking, funded this thing for fifty bucks. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what to think of myself or of App.net. Did you back this project? Uh, yeah, I did, but I did it a different way than, uh, than uh, apparently other people have done it because I wanted a different username. Oh, so you didn't have to claim your I did not have to claim it. So the yeah, process why? for me was a little bit different. Why did it's, they make you claim it, though? Like, why did they it care doesn't make, I, I don't know why. It's, it's a very strange thing. I wanted a different username than the one that I use on Twitter. So I, it did, it, it, there's, a little, there's a little radio dial that you, you radio button that you are supposed to pick. That says that yes. The, oh, by, by the way, this is all coincidentally is my Twitter name. Well, if you pick no and you want something else, uh, then you, you're not prompted to claim it at all, and it just says, "Oh, you're in line for that one." It doesn't tell you if somebody else has requested it or not. It doesn't to give you any information, and that makes the, again concerning things. <laughs> yeah, like uh, does that concern me a little? That that uh, maybe I paid fifty dollars for something I'm yeah. not going to get. Well, obviously, and, and, I and you can't <laughs> I, I think of why know. they would do that. Yeah, like, what? Why wouldn't they just tell you that you had it? Like, yeah, like tell do I have it or not? Yeah, just like, let me know. If you were making this service, someone someone says, "Okay, Dan, you're going to be making app.net, and we think you should do this." And like, that's your project. Would it even occur to you to not tell them that they got it? It's like, very concerning. Like it's just weird that things that seem obvious to us from the outside apparently are not obvious to them. I, uh, that's that's crazy. Like, and understanding why why do they care that I have the username on Twitter? What if I want to claim a username that I don't have on Twitter? Like, you're not making it. it it's clearly they're trying to piggyback on Twitter. And I've had I think most tech nerds probably pro, server side tech nerds certainly. I mean, you can ask Dan about uh, not Dan about this, Marco about this because he's half a server side tech nerd. Uh, if you do server-side software for a living, you frequently fantasize about what it would take to implement whatever popular service that you like, but that's pissing you off right now for some reason. You're like, I can implement something like Twitter, and here's how I would do it. And like, what I would do is I would make it so that like it would import all your tweets and it would mirror Twitter, but they would block me on the API. But like, I just need enough to bootstrap the service. Like, you're trying to 
get off the ground by, jeez, uh, I'm making more horrible scientific analogies, you know, using, using the gravity of a larger planet to slingshot you in, around and uh, get greater speed. And so Twitter would be the massive, you know, planet or the sun or Jupiter, wherever that you slingshot your spaceship around. And they swat at you and they yell at you and say, stop harvesting our crap. It's like, ha, ah, too late. I'm, I'm off at a, at a higher speed in a new direction. That, that seems like what they're kind of what they're doing is like, we want to make this like Twitter. And we don't want you claiming username that you don't have on Twitter because that would create conflict and discontinuity. And we want it just to be like a seamless experience of like you leave Twitter and you come to app.net and you keep your same username. And so we don't have these fights. But then they're letting you pick a new username, but they're not telling you if you had it. It's, it's all very confusing. I mean, they did a lot of things right. Claiming a username that totally goes into the the uh, tech nerd desire to have your preferred username. It's very upsetting if you don't have it and you have to pick something bogus. Like, I, I have never in my entire life registered a username anywhere that has a number in it. And I think I'm in good company with uh, some portion of the people who are listening to the show right now. Have you ever used a number in your username any anywhere in your entire life? Well, you were a Windows user once, so who knows? I, only when it was forcibly uh-huh. assigned to me all right, all right. if it's just yeah but if you don't get to pick it they i give have you the never number. and would never pick anything that had a number in it yeah, except five by five but you know what i mean like no I'm, I, that, that's that's i'm talking about for a personal identifying like that, that's not a username for me that's not me yeah. people who put like their birth year or the graduation it's year crazy. or they put two or they put it's just that, you know that's not the audience they're, they're talking to so so putting that perk out there claim your username like that's good like it's like they understand us they're they're pushing our buttons right and everything they say is but then it's other parts are just weird and it's like you don't understand us and what are you guys doing it's like if you've been take your first hundred or thousand backers how many how many backers do they have now they're almost up to a thousand isn't it like 994 backers pick a random backer from that group and ask them hey, uh, should we make that you have to send a uh, a tweet to all of your followers with some marketing message in it they will say no. Like, they'll all say it. Take any of them and say, well, we want to let you claim a username. Should, should we tell them that they got the username or just leave it a mystery? They'll all say, just tell them. Like, either they got it or they didn't. Like, these are such easy decisions. It seems like every one of their backers could have made the right decision in all the cases they made the wrong ones. Should we use this kind of marketing speak? Should we say it on a going forward basis in our text? No, you should not say that. Don't use those words. What you know you what's a great, a great rule of thumb, John, that you know? If it doesn't sound good when you say it, it won't sound good when it's read. Well, it's all a question of what does good mean? Like, that's what we worry about. Maybe they think that's good. Maybe like they, like saying that out loud sounds good to somebody? So, I, that's Come what on. I'm saying. Come on. It's, it gets back to the durability thing with, like, the, the iPods. Like, oh, maybe someone thinks scuffed stainless steel looks good. Steve Jobs said he liked it. You know, mm-hmm. it tastes different. And we're like, we want our taste to align with your taste. Like, that's what we're getting on board for. You want to feel like this is somebody whose opinion of good matches your opinion of good. Like, that's that's who you want to give money to. And it tastes vary. I'm not saying one taste is better than the other. But when it comes time to give money to somebody, you want to feel that kinship. And these places where we don't feel the kinship is like... I don't know, this is not off on a, 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 the right foot. So, like I said, they're, they're at 68,000 to 500,000. This is the real killer for this project. Uh, and uh, you've talked about this with Marco about the, the Twitter stuff. The fact is, the rest of the world doesn't care about this crap. They use Twitter. They don't care if it has ads. They don't care what client they use. They don't even, maybe they don't even know their third party clients. They just Twitter comes on their phone. Like, who knows? Like, it, we are so in the minority because Twitter is just a mass market phenomenon. Who cares about this app.net stuff? App.net stuff very tiny sliver of the population and maybe it's not a big enough sliver to make anything of it like i sometimes i think about in my fantasy scenarios of re-implementing twitter like if i could just get all like the tech nerds on it 
and they paid, you know, you know, one cents a month or whatever, something like that. Like, would that be viable or would you feel like we were insulating ourselves from the rest of the world? I guess a counterexample is like Facebook, because most of the people I know don't participate in Facebook and we don't feel like we're missing out on anything. I certainly don't. Like, I, I have a Facebook account. I've had one forever, but I just don't use it. And I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything, despite the fact that 99.99% of the world uses it. The 0.001% that I care about doesn't. That's not how we communicate. Unfortunately, how we communicate is Twitter. So now it's like, okay, we'll take that away. And we're going to have our own little private world of, you know, Twitter with just tech nerds. Will we feel like we're missing out on the rest of the world? Like, I won't be able to follow, uh, you know, let me think of celebrity that I follow. I don't follow too many. I won't be able to follow Neil deGrasse Tyson anymore because he won't be on my little narrow thing because he's a mass market guy. He'll still be on Twitter. So I won't see his stuff anymore. Uh, or Alton Brown or any of these, these uh, yeah. nerd icons. I, I don't know. I don't know if this project will succeed. That's actually one of the things that made me give fifty dollars because I'm like, it's probably not going to go anywhere anyway. And I think I should have looked into this, but I think if it doesn't go anywhere, they don't reach that goal. I don't. My fifty dollars comes back to me. Uh, but you know, if, even if it doesn't, so what? I'm I'm willing to give these guys fifty dollars. I give them that money just for having balls, if, despite all their problems and all the missteps they may have made. They say a lot of the right things, and they're doing the thing that. Uh, I've only fantasized about and never actually done. So I, they get my 50 bucks. And they get your 50 bucks. They get Marcus 50 bucks. They get Gruber's 50 bucks. Jesus, like every, you know, it's peer pressure. It's this <laughs> desire. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with nucleation site for the, for the thing that causes everything to crystallize around uh, it. From, from the notes in the chat room. And I, I, know, I saw nucleus in that. It made me think of nucleation site. But there are many other seed crystal, many other suggestions there. Uh, so I think that's what app.net is. I just hope it grows into a beautiful crystal and just doesn't... Uh, fester into a pile of mold. So what do you think? Well, I don't, I don't know. We'll have to see what ter- comes out of this thing. But well, how do you handicap them? What do you think their odds of, of anything <laughs> coming out of this? I think, no, I mean, I think they have to do it. I think they'll get it. And I think they have to do it. I think if they don't do it, it will be a disaster. A disaster because so many people have, you mentioned peer pressure from the side of, of wanting to make it work. Well, I think the pressure on them now is huge. Also, here, here's an example of a similar phenomenon on a much smaller scale. Does the, does the phrase letters.app mean anything to you? To me? No, no, you don't know. You don't know in on that. So this is a similar, even more narrow tech nerd area of dissatisfaction. Was that we oh, all, wait a minute. It, wait it, a minute. <laughs> that's that old male thing. That, yeah. that, yes, I remember. Okay, before we do that, let's do our last sponsor and then we'll get it. Because that's, 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 I was just thinking about that the other day. I didn't even remember it. It had <laughs> a name. name. I didn't even yeah. remember it was named letters. All right. So uh, our last sponsor is Rackspace.com. Rackspace hoping, ho- hosting or hoping. Rackspace hoping. That could be a new thing for them. Uh, these guys, 180,000 businesses are using these guys. They have their fanatical support you've all heard about. And when most people think of Rackspace, what do they think about? They think about physical servers being customized and supported and loaded up on a rack in a data center somewhere. But And yeah, that's probably 50% of what they do. The other 50% of what they do is cloud hosting. Everybody knows that the buzzword of cloud hosting, but these guys... What they mean when they say cloud, they're talking about servers, storage, load balancing that scales and that you pay for as you go. You pay for what you need. You pay for what you use. They have a control panel for this. They've got an API interface so you can script it all. And they can do something 
that it, it is very special. And what that is is hybrid hosting. They give you dedicated service for your performance-intensive applications. And they give you cloud service for on-demand scaling so that you save money. You don't overbuy. You buy exactly what you need. And they have something that integrates all this called Rack Connect. It seamlessly links it. And their people, the people, when you call these up 24 hours a day, seven days a week on their free 800 number, there's a human being who will answer the phone who will understand exactly what it is that you're doing and that you need to do. You don't get, well, the one lady over in the cloud, she understands the cloud stuff but doesn't understand the, the managed hosting stuff, so she can't. No, they understand everything, everything that you're trying to do. These guys also are big supporters of OpenStack, which is a really cool initiative. Open Cloud, and it's all about choice. We're talking about choice today. They do, they, they're behind that, and they've, they've been since the beginning. So check these guys out. Go to rackspace.com slash 5x5, and you'll see special information and stuff for you the next time you're thinking about starting hosting somewhere. I ask that maybe you check these guys out, rackspace.com slash 5x5. Thanks very much to them for making the show possible. So you should have said you had a hosting sponsor. You say Hover doesn't need to do hosting. Rackspace does. That's our next sponsor. Synergy. I don't want to steal. You know, I don't want to steal from your. You had a little diatribe going. I don't take that. All right. So while you were doing that spot, I put a couple links in the show notes. One, I, I wanted to say where is all this letter stuff. So I googled for it. I found the letters.app Twitter account. Uh, I found the lettersapp.com homepage, which I assume is the page. It just contains the word letters in all caps. Uh-huh. That is the only content on the page. I found an article that says Sparrow, which is in the news and we might talk about in a second. Uh, Sparrow was born from Letters.app. This is an interview with one of the people involved with Sparrow saying how they were inspired to create Sparrow, the the Mac native Gmail client, from the Letters.app initiative. And finally, I have a link to an Ars Technica story from 2010. It says, uh, Rage Against the Mail Machine, the Genesis of Letters. Now, Letters was a project uh, proposed by Brent Simmons, the famous creator of NetNewsWire, because he, like many tech nerds, felt that the choice for native Mac email applications was crappy. These are people who don't want to use web email interfaces. They want to use native Mac applications. It used to be a great market for them. Eudora was an early one, and there was Claris Emailer and lots of other things. And Apple, including Mail and the genesis of not the genesis, the uh, the dawning of the web mail age, has basically eliminated the market for a commercial Mac email clients. And Brent thought that was a shame, so he came up with this idea. Uh, John Gruber, I believe, signed on as like the project manager or figurehead or whatever you want to call it of the of the letters.app project. There was a mailing list. A bunch of other Mac developers got on board. And who was it supposed to? Was it Gus Mueller was supposed to do some development of it? Cafasis was involved in some way. You can read the article. Uh, the point is, it was a similar type of thing of like, hey, you know, we all want a native Mac email client that's cool. Uh, we don't like Apple Mail that much. And the other ones are even worse. Uh, and we know a bunch of software developers. Why don't we just make that thing? And we'll put some guy in charge. We all we all agree we like John Gruber's taste, so he can be in charge of it, and we'll get these great developers. And and then it just fizzled. Like, that was from 2010, and nothing really happened. And then interview with the Sparrow guys, I guess it shows that they were inspired by that and just went off and made their own thing called Sparrow, which is a very different, very minimalist, interesting-looking uh, email client that was just today purchased by G- by Google. Right. And so, so much for that app. Uh There'll be no more. And it was, it was more or less announced, by the way, uh, that there won't be any improvements, that there will be potentially bug fixes, but that's about it for that. Yeah. 
It's typical Google acquisition where they want the people and they'll repurpose them to do something that's, you know, they're not buying the application. That, that's why, like, the story headlines, like, uh, Google purchases Sparrow. They didn't purchase Sparrow. They don't want Sparrow. They have no interest in Sparrow. They purchased the people who made Sparrow because Sparrow was cool and the people who made it are smart and can do cool things. Well, I actually think you're being even a little bit optimistic there. I think they purchased Sparrow so that it would go away or so that Apple wouldn't get it. I mean, I really, or they, they could use it for their own stuff. I don't, I don't think that there is anybody's best interest in mind here at all. So, yeah, I, I don't know if they were worried about Apple acquiring Apple. Apple, if Apple bought them, it would be for the exact same reason. They would, Apple would not buy them and then produce Apple branded version of Sparrow. They just want the people. Uh, so I don't, I don't begrudge them their success. I think Sparrow was cool. Uh, uh, I didn't like it more than the web interface, but I thought it was very interesting. I liked the idea of a native client. Same thing with letters. I like that idea as well. Uh, someone in the chat room linked to the source code. It was Gus Mueller uh, in his uh, GitHub page. You've got the source code to letters, or such as it is. Uh, letters, as far as I know, does not exist in any form that would be recognizable as an email client by a regular person. That just kind of fizzled. But so getting back to the uh, the app.net thing, that is a example of a very similar phenomenon on a slightly smaller scale from the past with a lot of the same players involved who were talking about tweeting these things, you know, in our circle of friends who were like, yeah, we want that. Let's do that. Only in this case, it's not us trying to get together and make something happen. Because that the reason that doesn't work, I think probably probably the reason that this didn't work with the letters.app is that everyone involved in it had some other gig. Like, you know, Gus Mueller's got Flying Meat Software, makers of Acorn and many other fine applications. Uh, he's busy. Brent Simmons was I think he was then still on Net Newswire and now is on Glassboard. Like they have jobs, they have their own projects, and you can't it's not something like you can't do something like this in your spare time. So it's not surprising that it didn't go anywhere with a bunch of really smart guys who were all really busy trying to do it in their spare time. No one was like, that's it, I'm quitting my job, I'm going to make this thing. Except for maybe the Sparrow people. I don't know when, I didn't get time to read that thing that I signed the link of, but those guys were inspired by the idea and they went and said, this is what we're going to make. We're going to make this awesome application, it's going to be called Sparrow and blah, blah, blah. And they got acquired by Google and bully for them. So it shows, it's kind of getting back to what you said, that you can't do something like this as a part-time kind of thing. You really have to commit to it. What is your, how would you phrase your... That's, no, I mean, you summed it up perfectly. Is that you, you, something like this, for you to see the kind of success that you, you would want to see with something, you have to dedicate yourself to it full-time. You can't, you can't have a side project and do, uh, do a, you know, can't have a side business and a, and a, a regular full-time job or a main business uh, and, and expect either of them to be as successful as they would be if you devoted yourself to it 100%. And, That's yeah, my, and, philosophy. my philosophy. And not just not successful, like letters.net, uh, letters.app basically just didn't exist. Like you can't even get something that exists if you don't dedicate, you know, again, these are, <laughs> right. like forget about like, oh, it's not going to be as good as you just won't even get off the ground. So yeah. it's, this is different in app.net. These guys are clearly like, this is what they're doing. This is their thing. It's not like they're doing it on the side. Now, granted that app.net homepage that shows about something different that I still don't understand. This shows that they could be transitioning, but remember how Twitter started. It was, you know, Odeo or whatever they were yeah. trying to do that uh, podcast thing. And then Apple squished them with podcasts and iTunes and they changed, they, I hate this phrase, but they did the pivot and they're like, okay, well, what about this other idea? Well, so maybe that's what these app.net guys are doing. They had some business and, but like clearly some people are like dedicated to this app.net idea and it's not us. It's not the funders, right? We want it to exist, but we don't have time to make it. Well, someone else volunteered to try to make it and they're going to do it seemingly as their full-time thing. So this gives it slightly better odds than letters.app. Uh, but on the other hand, what they're trying to do is a lot more difficult than making a native, you know, if you make a native Mac mail client and enough people buy it so that you make a profit, you're done. But if you na- make a Twitter replacement, it takes a lot of people 
to get the critical mass to make it so that anyone ever wants to be there. Like I think of like what is that Identica, Identic.ca, which is a, a Twitter competitor that happened that came up and got interest back around the time when Twitter couldn't keep their service up, and so I registered for oh, an right. account there. Uh, I never go to it though, but it's still there. People still follow me on it. I occasionally get messages of some person is following <laughs> following your notices on Identica. I'm like, really? The place where I've never posted anything? Or maybe I did, you know, years ago. Uh, so App.net has many challenges ahead of them. Someone in the chat room, Dented Meat, as always, has a tweet from Tapbot Paul, the guy, one of the guys who works for Tapbots, says, to, to the Sparrow guys, seriously though, big congrats to the folks at Sparrow. I look forward to seeing what you guys come up with in three years once you fully vest. <laughs> oh, man. It's basically saying, congratulations <laughs> on the buyout. You deserve it. Right. Uh, uh, you're going to get a lot of stock. And once those stock shares vest, you will have a lot of disposable income. Then you can quit Google and make something cool. <laughs> you know, that's, I always wonder how people must feel about uh, being acquired by Google. Like getting a lot of money is good. I, I would too would like a lot of money. Uh, I would have very, I would have a difficult time hiding the fact that all I wanted was a lot of money and I'm not particularly enthusiastic about working for Google, but I'll do my time, stick it out, and then leave the company as soon as I can with all my big money in hand and do what I really wanted to do. And that happens a lot. That phenomenon happens a lot. I think probably companies like Apple and Google are probably even okay with that. Like, we get you for some period of time. You contribute to our company where you probably wouldn't otherwise have worked if we weren't paying this huge... It's, it's kind of a weird way of paying particularly talented individuals a tremendously high salary for a short period of time because otherwise they would never come to you. They'd always want to be independent, right? So you come, we put the golden handcuffs on, you got to wait for your whatever's to vest. Uh, and then when that time's up, you leave and no hard feelings because during those two or three years, you worked for us and we would otherwise not have ever had you working for us and we think you're smart and do good things. And then it's just up to the people who are running the company to make sure that they take all those talented people and actually put them to test doing something that's interesting. And or that will be valuable to the company. I think Apple is much better at that, at getting people on board, even if it's only for a brief period of time, and making sure you put them on the task of doing something. Like Mike Mattis is a great example. He left uh, Delicious Monster to go work for Apple. What did Apple do when they got Mike Mattis? They made him design the UI for iOS. That was a good use of his yeah, talents. Pretty the time effective. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did the uh, the battery meter thing that you see, you know, the big battery with, filled with the green stuff. I think that was him. Like, oh, neat. Can you say that, though? You're not allowed to say that. He said, I think I've heard it somewhere. I've never talked to him. I've never met him. So I have no inside information on Mike Mattis. So I'm not uh, giving up any confidences here. But I remember seeing that rumor. But let's just assume that he did. Even that's the only thing you got from him, the amount of cumulative value from his brief stint at Apple, as he's since gone on to do other things, is tremendous. And uh, I mean, they got him not because they bought out his company, but because he was young and starting out or whatever. And they could just afford to get him for a little while until he figured, you know, I'm out of here. But if Google had gotten him for some period of time, would he have done something that had as much lasting value? Like maybe they would have had him work on Google Plus and it would have fizzled. And then when he leaves, it's like, well, what do we get for that? So that's that's why company leadership and strategic direction means so much because you can have the best, most talented people. And, you know, I think it, it is good to buy their companies and get them in a talent acquisition. But once for the few years that you've got them, you better give them something good to do. Uh, it's not going to make them not leave, probably. But otherwise, you're just wasting their talents. Like you, you had this great person and you made them do something that nobody wanted. And they did an awesome job at it, but it turns out just the, the strategy is no good. Uh, David Smith says the battery indicator is in Mike Mattis's uh, design portfolio. So there you go. Public knowledge. I drew the battery, among many, many other things. I think he did photo booth, too. I'll put that in the show notes. 
boy, we've we've gone all over the place here, but I think uh, I think we're we have reached the end. One hundred and three minutes. Seems good to me. Damn. Anything that brings down my average, you know. Yeah. Marco's curve is like a little roller coaster on that chart. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. I think the baby put a kink in. Yeah, his. I think one of those dips is is baby. Well, I don't know if it's like the upward dip or the lower dip, but like the the baby is clearly twisting his thing like a piece of spaghetti in that graph. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's going upward though. You you should you as the uh, you in this analogy of the talented employees and the company people, you should set set the strategic direction for five by five to avoid the uh, singularity of all five by five shows, all of which seem to be going upwards <laughs> because like there's a limited amount of your time and really we're, just, we're I would lo- they- I would love to you know people get angry people get very because once they get the taste of a Syracusean length <laughs> show, they don't want to let go of it. Yeah, you know. It's like when your significant other wears a, that special thing, you want them down. They you want them to wear that special thing every time. Not the analogy I would have used, but your choice. Oh, that's how I think of you, John. Yeah, You're, often. That, well, <laughs> at least once a week. But that's the thing: is that people they get used to the show. They get used to well. He did 103 minutes last time. Maybe he'll do 108 next time. Yeah. And then they and then all of a sudden, if if I crack down and say 60 minute shows from now on. 60 minute shows then all then everybody will be upset and I, you know they're already upset at me i don't need more of that. oh you know that's that's i think they call that leadership though sometimes people are gonna be you mad know? at you that's your job to all take right that from now, then from now on 60 minute shows done did you hear that everybody send down your email last last <laughs> time you hope you enjoyed your 105 minute show because from now on 60 minutes yeah. what, I, what i'm just thinking and you know what i'm gonna do when we hit 60 minutes that's it. I just I'm gonna hit the stop button. We go off the air, Mid and that's sentence. it. Mid sentence. Mid- that's what it takes. Oh well. Yeah. That's what that's, it takes. That's one way to go. Another way to do it is yeah. if your show goes longer, I can take the time away from another host. <laughs> oh no, that's no good. No, because then just like well, I go on Friday. There'll be no time left for me. Unless what, you would you roll start- over. I would have to roll into the Monday show, oh. into Marco's show. There'll be no shows next week. I got a lot to talk about. <laughs> that's right. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm th- what I'm thinking of though is I think the current lengths are are tenable, but if trends continue, eventually you will actually be sitting in front of that microphone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as as people bring you steaks on plates and uh, hook you up to various catheters and other devices, so you can, must continue podcasting. <laughs> and, and with that beautiful image, I think we're done. Yeah, I think we end there. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Of course, uh, as we mentioned, you can uh, if you'd like. See the show notes that uh, John has carefully curated for you at 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 77. If you'd like to send your thoughts and uh, feedback to the show, you can do that at 5x5.tv slash contact. And then you just pick hypercritical from that list, and John and I will both get your email. We do read all of the email. We don't always respond to read it on the air, uh, but uh, we will do our best to try to read it all. And uh, you can follow John on Twitter, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, nosy. I'm Dan Benjamin, also on Twitter. And uh, that pretty much wraps it up for this show. We thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to listen live, you can do that by going to 5x5.tv slash live or by getting the iOS app. Just search for 5x5 radio in the iTunes store. We've got a new version coming out. The bigger play button. And uh, there's some other things that are going to be happening, but just go to the follow 5 by 5 on Twitter, I guess, for those. Anything else, John? I think you covered it. All right. Have a great one. You do.